If you are searching for the definitive book about Caribbean rum, look no further. Today we chat with Matt Petrick and Carrie Smith, co-authors and producers of that very book, Modern Caribbean Rum. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Matt Petrek and Carrie Smith. They have written and designed and published a comprehensive new book about rum. The book is Modern Caribbean Rum, a contemporary reference to the region's essential spirit. To say this book is comprehensive seems almost cliche. The book may change the standard of spirits books. So welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hi there. Good to see you again. Nice to see you too. So I have to say, besides being a really great doorstop, because (laughs) it was just so very big, I have to say this book is so incredibly comprehensive and it was very different from what I thought you know, there's not this big historical thing about the history of rum. Um, I mean, there are nods to it. I I don't mean to say that there's nothing about history in here, but it's really, really contemporary. And I think that that is refreshing because so often spirits books really get heavy on the history as opposed to what's happening today. So what made you decide to write this one? Um, uh, Matt here, <laughs> I'll speak to that. Uh, so yeah, the idea started back when I was started researching rum or getting into rum and tiki cocktails back in 2011 or so. And I realized that there were very few sort of current references out there that the information people were passing around was 10 or 15 years old. And, you know, as is often the course with my writing, so much of it is like, I have, I have a question myself, and I can't find an answer. So I guess I'm just going to go find it myself. And so I just kept doing that. And at some point, it was like, you know, I I should publish this. (laughs) You know, it's great that I have the information, but I would like to share what I what I've learned with other people. So that was sort of the genesis of it. And, you know, in all due respect to the people like, like Wayne Curtis and Ian Williams and and Dave Wondrich, who write about these historical things. I love those as well. But there's a glaring hole for very modern, current, up-to-date, comprehensive, single point of view reference uh, on rum. This category just doesn't have one. So I always think about things that are very up-to-date, and then all of a sudden they're not. So (laughs) how do you think that you'll be keeping this up to date? Are you going to keep it up to date through a website or a spot on your website? Or are you going to publish updates? You know, I'm a lawyer. And so I know that, you know, we don't even have law books anymore. Everything is online because it's changing all the time now. So what what is your plan? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And one I've thought long and hard about myself. And I'm certainly very cognizant of the issue because one of the best rum books that I um, have is from 1982. And it's like, 
was a contemporary book at the time and is now a historical record for me. So yeah, but the plan is that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to revise the book every, you know, several years, maybe more than two years, but every several years and keep it up to date and add to it over time. So that's sort of my current thinking. But in addition, um, like I have a I have a Substack and Rumwonk and my you know, rumwonk.com. And my goal is to sort of, as things sort of change or, you know, get added to in the present, you know, I can write about them in a Substack, And so that'll be sort of like the blog of here's what's new. Here's what would be in the book if we published it now. And then at some later point, we can incorporate that into a revised uh, edition. Now that's going to put, that's an enormous amount of work for Carrie and I'll let her speak to that. It will be an enormous amount of work, but I also think that that's the benefit of, of doing this the way that we've been doing it, which is to sort of own the process from soup to nuts, right? Mm -hmm. um, is to be able to control that and not have to go back to a publisher and say, hey, this distillery is gone or this one has been added and we need to add 30 pages or, or take things out. Um, that we can, can kind of control that and we understand our audience. And if it's important that this book this tangible thing, which I think also is is important. I mean, you said that law books aren't even printed anymore, but there's also this, you know, there's there's a mistrust of 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 the kind of freely available information anymore. And I think if you have something like this that comes from a a source like Matt, who's been so steeped in this for over ten years, um, that there is an, an, we hope, an element of trust that we've built up over time with, with his work and that something physical that we've put the effort and, and, um, and time and money into printing gives it some bit of authority for someone to trust, right? And we take that very seriously. Um, but yeah, I do think kind of being able to update it, you know, we do, again, we're not a big publisher, we do small print runs. So if we need to make a change for the next printing, we can do that, right? That falls on me, but that's a relatively easy thing to do. And we can keep it as current as, as we can, as we kind of take these smaller steps. So yeah, I'll, just add really, I'll just add really quickly. I mean, it still floors me when I see, you know, I hear a fellow author say like, I just turned my book into the publisher and in 18 months we'll see it. And I'm like, oh my God, oh, <laughs> that would drive me nuts. You know, so. I wrote a book called New Orleans, a food biography, and I think it was published in 2012. And then it was later selected as the one book, one New Orleans book. And part of what you do when that happens is you get to read it on WRBH, mm -hmm. which is the radio for the blind and print handicapped. So I read this book out loud <laughs> to to a recording basically so that it could be played on the air and so much of it was out of date because oh. people had died you know yeah. it was all this stuff about various people who were involved in different historical things mm -hmm. and including contemporary history and and restaurants closed and people right. died and all kinds of things happened and I'm reading stuff that seems out of date, you know, but I'm, I'm reading exactly. what was written in the book. So I know, I know what it feels like to have that happen. But now this was years later. So it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't quite like, oh, well, tomorrow, this is going to change. But so my question really would be just as we're talking about this, Carrie, when you were saying it, you were acting as though you would actually rewrite this book and add whatever changes there are 
for the next publication to keep it up to date. But what if you already have the book? Are you going to do like a, a yearbook or like once every five years if you you know, publish the, okay, this is the update so that you aren't sure. buying the whole book over. Whole book, over. the whole eight pound book again. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, we've talked about doing digital editions. It's something that, um, that we, when we published our first book, we had a group of recipes in the back that, that got added some modern ones. And we published just a short ebook of those things for a few dollars that was available on Amazon. So I think, you know, we're still just kind of getting our, our feet under us with this particular edition and, and shipping out these first few thousand copies. And I think it's just sort of responding to the market too. You're right. I don't think anyone wants, you know, 10 eight pound books on their shelf, even though we would love that. Um, well, especially this- when much of the information is the same. Exactly. You know, it, yeah. it, you can have 10 eight pound books if each one is some <laughs> special thing. But, thing. Yeah. But, but if you're repeating a lot of the same information, exactly. that's, that's when you don't necessarily want it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, my, my hope that- is that as as the situation warrants, like if we wait five years, I'd like to think that we can dramatically overhaul it. That even that even people who own the first edition will be like so excited by new material or more current photos, more current information that they'll be like, "Yes, I'll happily buy this." You know, <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's the very you know, we can't say like it'll be every year or every five years, but you know, when I feel or when Carrie and I feel that like there's there's enough to warrant. It's not a reprinting. It's a brand new edition then we'll make that call okay okay so tell me how you decided to organize this book so that was a fun one Um, I'm a big believer in outlines and so I think very hierarchically and I knew that you know the a big part of the problem the issue the initial challenge was her defining scope of like what's in bounds and what's out of bounds what do we want to cover? What can't, what shouldn't we cover? Because we just can't do that justice. So, you know, I knew, I knew, for example, that current up-to-date information on distilleries was, would be important. And I wanted to arrange, you know, in sort of an obvious organization of, you know, by country and by distillery and a very consistent way we approach each distillery. So it's, it's, it's not like you took a grab bag of distillery write-ups from different authors with different approaches. Everything in this book is a very consistent approach when it comes to the distilleries and countries. They're, you know, sort of like define how you're going to do it and then do it for all of them. In front of the front material, you know, I realized that, for example, I want to talk a lot about like the business of rum and the sort of behind the scenes things that mm-hmm. that influence the rums that are made and the rums that we have available. Um, and, you know, it's, it's I just I brainstormed a bunch of chapters I wanted to do and then sort of tried to lump them together into something coherent, you know, understanding rum, the business of rum. Um, I forget, uh, pr- producing rum and then the chapter. So I think of it as a book in in four major sections um, and then chapters within each section. Well, so my favorite chapter is chapter 18, which is evolving trends in rum. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind, I'd rather do a sort of deep dive into this chapter than just only talk about the overview or whatever. So my question is, how did you work on this one? And what issues did you think were important to discuss in the the new trends? Right. Um, it's an ex- excellent question. <laughs> I'll be honest, I don't know that I put that much level of thought into it. 
essentially, I knew this book I knew was going to be very like technically focused and sort of have like this is the way things are, but I also knew that we are right now in rum rum world where just you know, I don't want to say renaissance, but things are changing so rapidly. Many, many great things are happening that I had to address these. I had to say something about them. And you know, th that chapter could easily be turned into a book all of its own. Mm -hmm. But again, it was really a matter of brainstorming of these are the things I'm observing as somebody who's who's as, as an outsider to the rum industry who somehow managed to winnow my way in and be able to work with many companies and work with organizations like WORSPA and kind of have a, a deeper perspective that the that most enthusiasts don't have, have a very deep perspective and see like, here are the challenges of rum, here's how they're responding to challenges. Um, uh, but mostly it's just sort of based, my observations based upon, you know, living and breathing rum 24 hours a day, so. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things about rum that is so really interesting to me is it's so related to sugar and sugar cane and the history of sugar cane around the world has been rather dr dreadful in terms of human life and, and human rights and things like that. And Recently in the news, there's been a whole lot about what's going on in the Dominican Republic, and uh, there have been some concern about um, the human rights of the people who are working in the sugar industry. So is it possible to distinguish between the rum business and the sugar business? Um, but, I mean, fun, fundamentally, you know, the, you know, it's a yes and a no kind of answer. At the end of the day, the vast majority of the world's rum is made by companies who are also part of the sugar industry as well. Um, and but then there are, you know, if you're a little, if you're a little distillery in say Scotland and you're buying molasses, you're sort of somewhat separated from that. But um, in particular, in the, the South American, Central and South American countries. Uh, and I wrote about this in a different chapter. There's this very tight integration between the same companies own the sugarcane fields, own the distilleries, um, make rum, make fuel alcohol, sell energy back to the grid. It's all a very integrated system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to the point of human rights is, is yes, there's absolutely an issue. There's been, you know, the issue with Florida Kanya that popped up uh, five or six, seven years ago um, mm -hmm. has come up. But I think, you know, what I point out in the chapter is, is there is progress. It's the progress is not done, but there is progress. And there's organizations like Bon Sucro who are acting as sort of, um, in, not international, but it's, yeah, international organizations spanning countries, spanning producers who are trying to basically creating a, a framework for, for, you know, people to be treated more humanely, to be uh, paid fairly, and for companies like a company that maybe just supply or just sources molasses allows them some degree of a, of a guarantee that that, that that sugar is ethically sourced from people who are treated properly and paid properly and so forth. So still much to do, but there is not like there's nothing going on in that space. Mm -hmm. So what do you think that the responsibility of the rum drinker might be? That's, I mean, that's an, that's, an, that's an interesting question. You know, it, it's, I think as, as with all spirits, 
or actually anything we consume, sure. mm -hmm. uh, we have we have to we have to you know take into account you know and and I actually made this point in the uh, one of the earliest chapter the, the first or second chapter they talked about like yeah there's a long tradition of like or a long evil bad history of rum and slavery and all these things but you can you can say the same thing this same situations the same colonialism and what have you uh also was part of the sugar industry part of the tobacco industry part of the all these other industries so so yes the you know you can say like yes there's a responsibility of the rum drinker but if you're also if you're buying a bag of sugar you're at that you're in that same you know the same sort of questions arise Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not trying to to say that rum is this big evil as opposed to other things, except that we're talking about rum today. So oh, no, that's why. No, ab absolutely. You know, and I and to be honest, I think uh, you know, I understand people's desire to be, you know, to sort of you know make ethical choices, and and hopefully this book provides some deeper insight into these into these you know how the industry works and you at least you know have more it's not the end of the story it's not everything you need but at least hopefully the book provides you enough information to where you could go dig deeper like if you want to know who makes this rum oh it's this company here's information about this company you can then go do more research on your own okay speaking of research how <laughs> did you decide this is enough <laughs> in other words, this book is, is you know, it really is comprehensive. And a lot of times people try to be comprehensive, but it becomes such an enormous task and so difficult to organize and present the information in a meaningful way that people kind of pull their hair out and, and give up. And you didn't give up. You actually wrote <laughs> the book and you organized the book, Carrie, and got it so that the pictures and the layout and everything is readable and consistent and all of that. How did you decide, okay, this is enough? Right. Um, well, I will say, so, you know, one of, one of Matt's gifts in this life is his um, thoroughness. <laughs> and, you know, he takes some gentle ribbing from other folks in the rum industry about writing on the, on the web, for example, there might be an editor, me, but there's no one telling you, you only have this many words, right? You only have this many column inches anymore, right. like it used to be right. uh, when you were writing for print. And that's what the blessing and a curse, right? You have to find a way, I think, to get your point across so that someone still continues to read you, um, but also provide the information that you want. And, um, you know, Matt's been a writer for a long time, not just about rum. He wrote about uh, software engineering and then that sort of thing for, you know, a decade before I met him. And he has this gift of being able to take really complex subjects. Distillation, for example. Mm -hmm. um, Distillation is a is a you know is a mechanical process. It's a scientific process. There's a bit of art and magic to it as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I have been around uh, how dozens and dozens of distilleries and distillers. I know people in this industry. I've been you know tangentially involved in this myself for ten years plus. And until I read the chapter that he wrote explaining the actual act of distillation, I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> I get it now. I understood it, but now something clicked for me. So uh -huh. I think there's there's an ability to, you know, as a, as a semi-lay person, me, to read this information, knowing enough to know when something's wrong, but also understanding that there's something missing. Like I, as an, an average person, mm -hmm. don't understand this and you might need to add more here. 
So I think we kind of looked at all of this information through through both of those eyes, right? People mm -hmm. who are sort of experts in the field and, and all of the resources that Matt relied on to fact check, to read this information, to make sure that what we were putting out was correct, but also from sort of a layperson's standpoint to, to make sure in the design, for example, that what we're talking about in the words is there with the pictures so that I can actually see what's going on. Um, if there was a picture I didn't understand, I was like, why are we using this? What are we trying to show? So that we could all sort of, you know, together figure out um, the important stuff that was here. To, to be fair, we did cut information from this book, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we the, the front part of the book, the, the first three parts on the production and the business and the sort of orientation, it really could be a book in it of itself. And we, mm -hmm. we did think for um, for a, a few minutes about maybe this is a two volume series, we'll see. But we really felt like all of that information wanted to be together because the people who are actually doing the work, the distilleries, the technical bits, the how they do it, to be able to flip back to the front of the book and say, oh, okay, this picture is about fermentation at this distillery. I can go back to the fermentation chapter and figure out exactly what I'm seeing or why don't I understand this? So I think there's that kind of interplay of information as well that was important. And then to be frank, there were a lot of hard conversations about like, this isn't going to fit. What are we going to cut? <laughs> um, and even if, you know, if we, we laugh about it being 800 pages and we cut information, um, there's, you know, are there other things we could have cut? Sure. Were we, was this ever going to be a 300 page book? No, not, not with Matt behind the wheel. So <laughs> and I'll, and I'll just add really quick. There were, uh -huh. there were, you know, there were creative tensions around how many pictures of brown foam do we need? Yeah. So yeah, but you know, but I think if, if you know, we, at the end, I think we were both happy with the balance we struck. Well, and also, uh, let's be honest, I think this is a, a wonderful thing. I'm not complaining about it. But, you know, there are there are pages where the entire page is a photograph or an mm -hmm. illustration. Yes. So it's it's not as though there are 800 pages of narrative no. for somebody no. to read. No. So I do want to say that so that we aren't scaring people. <laughs> we hope that it's a, my goal was to have it be, you know, a deeply informative book, but also a beautiful book. I mean, we're, we're talking about the, the Caribbean basin um, and the people and the landscape and the, the history and the agriculture there is so important and is so beautiful and is so sort of been passed over sometimes at the, you know, at the brand level or at the big corporate level as so many things are these days. But this is really down in the dirt. You're literally seeing where and how they plant the sugarcane plants or how things are harvested, whether they're still harvested by hand in some cases, for better or worse. Um, you know, to to see distilleries that are that have not evolved again, whether by choice or or mm -hmm. by economic um, you know suppression, really in in countries where the growth just hasn't been there, that they're still doing things the way that we were doing them, you know, 150 years ago, and that is is beautiful but also intense to look at um, but you can also see the leap that so many other countries have made uh, companies as well to to change this industry but it's little bit of living history right to, to be able to look at all of this stuff together so, so to me I wanted someone to be able to open this book and just be drawn in by by the imagery and have it be sort of clean and open enough. This shouldn't feel like a textbook though. <laughs> it has gotten joked about uh, that it would make a fine textbook. 
um, that it should be a delight to to look at while you're soaking in all this information. So I'll, I'll just add really quick that like sometimes I open it up and I flip through it and and I worry like are people just going to think there's this is a picture book? Uh, <laughs> but I know and you know I'm a data guy. I know there's over 170,000 words that I wrote which I looked up as two doctoral theses worth of words in there. So that's how I, that's how I convinced myself that it's not just a picture book. Well, but also, but also many times seeing something in a picture really clarifies words because if everything, I mean, one of the things that I, I say about the research that we do at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is that if everything is only abstract because it's described in words, mm -hmm. rather than, for example, being able to pick up that hot cauldron that is full of liquid that you are, you know, picking up, so you're leaning over and yeah. you're out, you know, not in the best position to pick it up, so it's dangerous and it sloshes and you're burning yourself. All right, maybe you don't want people to burn themselves just for the <laughs> experience. But if you pick up something hot, or at least you pick up something heavy, yeah, it feels different. And your understanding of it is different than if you just read it was heavy. Right. And Someone had to pick it up and carry it, right? It, that's, yes, that's exactly. And so these pictures do that same thing. They yeah. give you that little extra bit of clarification that makes your understanding a little bit deeper. Yeah. Uh, if there was a little bit of perhaps confusion about how it worked, right. the picture can clarify that. I, I think that it only tells me if somebody says this book should be a textbook, that textbooks <laughs> should have photographs and right, other exactly. in them, exactly. and not just words because yeah. that makes a big difference. Even things like the some of the portraits of historical portraits mm -hmm. of workers and things, yeah. uh, members of the corporate body or all the different kinds of pictures that are in here, seeing what people were wearing, yeah. um, what that, that kind of helps you date it because you can read this date, but it doesn't necessarily give you the same kind of meaning as seeing exactly. the clothing and um, how people held themselves in the photo yeah. even that kind of thing changes and I, you brought this up earlier and I think that you know Matt makes it very clear early on that this is not intended to be a history book right there's so many people who have done deep history mm -hmm. out there it's important to give that grounding to people who maybe don't have the awareness of of Caribbean history um there are you know there are additional resources out there that are that are much deeper dive than this but you know, to your point, to be able to 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 see those things, um, not just from sort of colonial era, you know, 1600s to to 1800s, but what happened after the abolition of slavery? What did things look like? How did it change? Um, and then that sort of middle history, right, where we can talk about today, mm -hmm. which is we can imagine, as you say, what's going on today. But what happened during World War II? Right. What happened when what you know to when sort of global production of everything was shifted to different resources? And how did this change corporate structures and businesses and who went out of business and who kind of conglomerated, right? That that sort of middle history that yeah. doesn't get talked about, I think is really interesting as well. Yeah, I'll add to that really quickly. Like in particular, what I've noticed is 
writing 1600s, 1700s, when this was basically the business of the empire, the British empire, the French empire, whatever, that they wrote about this extensively. So we have this great sort of historical records from those eras. But by the, you know, by the time you get to the early 1900s, this is all, this is corporate business. Right. And those records aren't out there in the public domain. They're not mm -hmm. being digitized. And so there's right. so much recent history that's that's fascinating. And I talk to people and they know this history, but they have nobody's written it down. And so, you know, beyond just this book, I'm frantically trying to document history from the last 50 years. People who lived it, created rums. 50 years ago through the present and who may die at some point soon. And I want to capture that before it's too late. Yeah. And having, having all of that captured is, is truly, truly important. You know, I did a, a podcast with um, the uh, person who wrote the pasta granny's book. And oh, what yeah. she does is she actually films people making pasta. Oh, how wonderful. These are people who have made pasta every day for their whole mm -hmm. lives. And they're in their eighties or nineties. Yeah. And it's such a fabulous record because yeah. I don't think she said, oh, let's record this for the record. I think she thought she was interested in them. Yeah. Watching how they do it. Yeah. Exactly. But it also creates a record. And yeah. that's what that's also what you're doing, whether you're saving something from being just tossed out or whatever, you're creating a record. So I do want to ask you a little bit about the future. What else yeah. besides this are you working on? <laughs> well, the, our little venture started a couple of years ago, end of 2018, early 2019 with our, our first book, which is called Minimalist Tiki. And you chatted with Matt about that a few years ago, which was great. Um, still out there selling. That was sort of our first effort of of trying to create a book that we knew how to market, but maybe a major publisher didn't quite know how to sell. Um, and, uh, you know, it's found an audience. We've sold almost 8,000 copies over the last three years, which is pretty good for, for people basically selling out of the trunk of our car, right? Uh, on the internet. And it's a, it's a hefty book too. It is, yeah, it's 300 and some pages of its own. And then we really started working on, on the idea for, for this one, for the Caribbean rum um, book. This is the book that Matt wanted to write before Minimalist Tiki sort of popped up as, a, um, as an idea. At that time, he had a literary agent who was shopping around um, this sort of a rum book idea, not specifically what we have produced here. Um, and a number of publishers were like, no, we, we have a rum book. We don't need that. Um, how about a cocktail book? And he did not, vehemently did not want to write a cocktail book. Um, but, you know, I recognized that there was information that he had on his on his website, this particular story that, um, that got a lot of interest. So it's the find a niche and fill it, right? So, um, so we've done this now twice. We've had a number of people sort of reach out to us about this you know, self-publishing tends to have a, um, a little bit of a stigma to it, I think. Um, it's, to me, it's sort of the democratization of the whole process, right? I worked in publishing in New York City back in, uh, in the 90s after college. Um, you know, I know enough to be dangerous about that, that industry. But also, I think it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, it's, it's, it's got a narrow focus. It's a narrow focus to a broad audience, right? Um, to find something that, that people can market and pitch. And um, I think there are really great resources out there for authors like us. Um, and hopefully we're working on a book right now. 
with another author. Again, this is a super niche audience. Uh, because of Minimalist Tiki, uh, we are sort of adjacent to, um, to the sort of the Tiki cocktail and lifestyle world. And there's a gentleman named Tom Janes who goes by Tiki Tom Tom. On Instagram. Is, on Instagram. Yes, he's on Instagram. Uh, who spent about a year and a half during the end of the pandemic, started in, in 2021, driving across the United States, visiting people's home tiki bars. These are people who have spent tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars fitting out a garage, a room, building a structure in their backyard. <laughs> so Tom traveled around, interviewed these people, kind of photographed these incredibly intricate spaces. Um, and this one definitely is a bit more picture book than textbook, um, but it's a really delightful sort of compendium of, of, of these people who have found a passion and live it and breathe it. And Tom's been able to document that. So the name of our little publishing company, Wonk Press, that's kind of what we think of it as is like super nerdy stuff, right? To find a niche and fill it. And we've got a few more things in the, pipeline. In the works. Yes. Um, a few that we can't talk about yet, uh, another sort of spirit-related book, hopefully, um, and a few other things, not necessarily uh, kind of spirits industry, other, you know, if anyone's got sort of a passion in an audience, that's that's kind of what we're hoping to help people publish, so we'll see how it goes. And so when do you think that we will see this uh, Home Tiki Bar book? Hopefully by, uh, we're aiming to have printed copies ready to sell by mid to late April. So the production is nearly done. We're waiting on cover design and a few other things, but fundamentally it's laid out and and together and uh, we're hopefully going to the printer next month. So it's a pretty exciting process. That is exciting. That is very exciting. I love the idea of, of documenting all these personal bars. I They're wild. Right. They are so incredible. You know, like I said, we've, we've sort of, we've had friends who are into this lifestyle at a different level, but these home bars will, will blow your mind. They are okay. in some cases, because they can be so much more intricate than even, um, you know, kind of public <laughs> bars and things that, that sure. people go yeah. to. So, and yeah. so intensely personal and in people's collections and they dress the parts and the hair and the clothes and it's it's wild it's a lot yeah, of and, I'll, and i'll just say it's not you know it's like we say bars we mean it's more or like it's the whole ambiance the environment yeah. and there's so many of them have history in there they're like old artifacts from the yes. 30s 40s it's that so it's not it's not at all i mean there will be some recipes but it's not at all no, it not, yeah. it's like these are different people's visions of yeah. of polynesia and what it what it means to them or at least, you know, the tiki, Polynesia within the context of tiki and, and escapism. So. Yeah. Right, right. Not real Polynesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The, the, the tiki fight escapism Poly- Polynesia. Yeah. <laughs> we really need to find a new word, not Polynesia. There should be right. some other place yes. that we've made up that, yes. that describes that place. Exactly. Yeah. It's, the, it's the theatricalness of, of tiki. It's being inspired by those things. Um, and uh, and creating a new environment, right? It's theater. Uh, it, it's you know these these aren't museums. This is this is a bit of theater and a bit of fun. So sounds great. Sounds great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Matt, Carrie, very you, very much for your time today. This has been really great. We're talking about modern Caribbean rum, and you want to give us the website. Sure. Pretty easy. So our website um, where you can get both Modern Caribbean Rum and Minimalist Tiki and future books, 
uh, like the Tiki book, uh, wonkpress.com, W-O-N-K-P-R-E-S-S, wonkpress.com. And Matt, you want to tell us about your Substack newsletter? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, the Substack is rumwonk, just like, you know, R-U-M-W-O-N-K, rumwonk.com. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.